the Lord, we, we're almost to Easter, and, and we can't help but think about that great event in time and space. In true history, 2,000 years ago, when indeed you not only died on a cross on Friday, we call good for our sins, but you arose from the dead on Sunday. all this talk about authority and all this talk about eternal life and all this talk about a life beyond this life well it came true and it's real and it all goes back to you when death was arrested and our life began thank you we praise you Help us today in this hour as we seek you to hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John 17, but I have a little, little housekeeping to take care of, you might say, uh, this morning. One is uh, invite cards for Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, which is what, two weeks from today? Is that right? Two weeks? I think that's right. Anyway, uh, pick one of those up. Feel free to pass those along. Also, uh, you have a note page. Take notes this morning. And on the back side, they have uh, a place there for prayer. And we're going to use this at the end of the service today. So we're going to have a little bit different closing to our service today where it's going to be a little more responsive on your part. So hang on to that. Don't lose that. And then the last piece is the, the envelopes, the Easter offering, offerings for Syria refugee relief. And, and I just want to talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, didn't want to listen today. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, you know, I think may, the, the, the best way maybe for us to to talk about this, and I, I don't know about you, but when I see this, the, the thing and things in the news, and and I hear about it, it's just it, it's just a bit overwhelming to realize that there are millions of displaced people because of the the civil war or whatever you want to call it. I don't know what they call it. I guess they call it a civil war in 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 Syria, ISIS, and all those those different facets there. But if you break it down to a, a real life level, we we took up money back in. At Christmas, we had a Christmas offering that we also gave for for Syria relief, and we gave it uh, to the Jacobsons uh, or through the fund that they can tap into that we're that we're given this time. And that's Matt and Kelly. That's Jason Hubner's sister and her husband, who are serving in the Middle East, uh, helping helping with uh, Syrians who've been pushed out. And uh, the email we got back from them for what they did. Um, with the money back in, in, in December, um, I, it, I just need to kind of tell the story because it, 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 it says it so much better than anything I could craft. Um, the money you sent arrived at a crucial time and was used to provide relief for 35 persecuted believers from a Muslim background. They had fled Syria about three years ago from a village just across the northern border after losing their homes and possessions to fire. These 35 came to faith, have been faithfully meeting together to study the Bible and pray. Just prior to getting our gift, they 
um, the home they had and they're displaced after being displaced was once again burned by Sunni extremists. No one was killed, but one of the women was severely burned by the mattress that caught on fire while she was sleeping. So, I say that to say this, that the money that we gave at Christmas was used to help these 35 persecuted believers um, with the needs that they had. And so, um, you know, again, you, you think about millions of people that have great need over there and you feel like a drop in a bucket, but when you hear about 35 people who need help that were helped because we gave in a very practical way, people who have lost everything not once but twice. Um, I don't know about you, but it just it, it, it makes it makes it makes me feel hmm, it makes me feel really blessed and rich, and I, I'm like um, so. Anyway, I say all that. I don't want to overplay this, but. Just as the Lord prompts you to give to this, I, I just think there's a, there's just a great a great need over there, and if you uh, if you'd like to give to that, you got an envelope and you can do that. Enough about that. Okay, John 17, John 17. We are we are we're wrapping up today uh, the upper room discourse, the time that our Lord Jesus was talking to his disciples before he went to the cross. John 13 through 17 is where it's recorded in Scripture. Next Sunday, we'll be observing Palm Sunday, and we'll do that. We don't usually do Palm Sunday, but we're doing Palm Sunday next week. And if you want to read ahead, you can read. Uh, you've been reading with me, I hope. Give you another assignment. Mark chapter 11 will be my text for next week. So if you don't have anything you're working through in your devotions, why don't you read Mark chapter 11 this week, and that'll kind of get you prepared for next Sunday. We've seen some big themes this, this series. We've seen um, love each other reciprocal love from John 13. We've seen Jesus is the way, the truth, and life from John 14. He is the way to God. This is important stuff. John chapter 15, we talked about being fruitful for God and, and being investing ourselves in things that will last. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works to draw people to himself. He works in our lives to bring us and teach us all truth. Today we come to chapter 17, which is entitled, uh, a lot of times in your Bible it'll say, The High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. Uh, this is the prayer of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And I, I'll have to say that, that reading through this chapter uh, this week, um, it, it gripped me in a way that, that 13 through 16 did not. And I, and I think it's because, and I, I don't know if any of you captured this, but I, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's kind of like listening into somebody else's praying out loud, because that's what it is. It's, we're, 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 we're privy here to Jesus praying. We, we're, we're listening to him pouring out his heart to the Father. And, and so there was, I, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a, a vulnerability or, or an intimacy. I, I don't know exactly the right word to use that we see in this that, um, that's pretty powerful if you stop and think about what you're actually reading and it's not just words on a page. Again, this, 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 this whole 
upper room discourses, a, a transition, these last words of Jesus, transition from the nation of Israel to the church, and it's, it's a time, and, and this could be, we're shifting into this fulfillment of the promises that Jesus made. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. He said to Peter, I tell you, dear Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He says, I'm going to build my church, and hell itself will not stop me. Now, how's this going to go on? Well, it's going to go on and on. In fact, Matthew 24, uh, Matthew 24, uh, when he was preaching about end times, he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we have this idea that looking at the big picture here, Jesus is saying, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to keep building my church, and the gospel, my gospel, will be preached to all the nations, and that's going to happen, and that's going to have to happen before the end of time. And then I come back. So that's kind of the big picture of what he's doing. With that in mind, John chapter 17, let's look at this in, um, in several sections here. The first five verses. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This first section of John 17, Jesus is praying for himself. Isn't that interesting? He's praying for himself. He realizes that the hour has come, that he, he's been living on this divine timetable, and he knew that it was his time. Five times he says either glory or glorify in this text. And we throw around sometimes the word give glory to God or glorify God. What does it mean? Glorify means to give weight, beauty, splendor, honor, exalt, all those kinds of words come when we give glory to God. That's what it means. It means we give weight to Him in our lives. We recognize His beauty and His splendor. We honor Him. And the glory that He shares is the glory that He shared with Him. We see here in verse 2, He says, authority has been given to me. This is like we read in, in the Gospel of Matthew where it says, all authority has been given to me which reinforces this whole idea that Jesus is the only way to God. He's been given authority to give eternal life. That should be very assuring to all of us who have put our trust in Jesus. He has that authority. He has been given that authority from the Father. But just hold on to this thought, and we'll come back to this at the end of the service today. Um, part of the response time is going to be for you to pray for yourself. Pray for yourself. You ever, th you ever think about praying for yourself? Does that that's kind of selfish, doesn't it? Pray for yourself. Let's not be more spiritual than Jesus. Jesus prayed for himself here. Father, glorify yourself through me. And so we're going to have that at the end of the service. Let's continue on. John 17, verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. 
Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Okay, now I'm flying fast. There's a lot of material to cover here. All right? I, I just so, so hang on. The second part of the prayer of Jesus, the first part is he prays for himself. The second part is he's praying for his disciples. And I think in a real sense, we can say he's praying for us today as well as his followers. He establishes their identity. He says, these are the ones that you have given me. They are the ones who have obeyed your word. And they're living, these are the ones who are living in a faith relationship with Jesus. So with that in mind, he prays for them. Again, this is just such an intimate thing. It gives, us, it gives us a glimpse into the heart of Jesus and what he's really feeling and what he really wants as he's praying to the Father. And, and this, is, this is, you remember, this is right before he goes to the cross. This is, this is weighing heavy on him. The timetable is, is coming. And with this, this is one of these intense times, you know. Sometimes I think we pray, and then sometimes we really pray. You know, when things are really intense in our lives, I think this is a very intense time that we're, that we're privy to here. So he prays for them, and I'm going to give you about five things that he prays for him. You might want to write them down. Number one, he, pray, he prays, Father, protect them by the power of your name. Protect them by the power of your name. Now, two times he says in this text, by your name. What, what does it mean for him to say, protect them by the power of your name? What does that mean? In, in this context, it, it's, it's referring to a Jewish expression that wraps up all the attributes of God. So to be protected by the name of God is to be protected by everything that God is. It's to be protected by a God that is sovereign, a God that is all-knowing, a God that is holy, a God that is wise, a God that is compassionate, and everything else that you know about God. 
Now, he says, I want you to protect them by the power of your name. And what's the point? It goes on to say here in the text that so that they may be one as we are one. Protect them by your name, by your great and mighty power, so that they will be one as we are one. And we're going to see this throw with... We're going to see this later on at the end of the chapter, this, this whole idea of the threat to the unity of the body of Jesus. Now, let me, let, me, let, me, let me lay a foundation here. When people are unified, when people are in agreement, when people are pulling in the same direction, it is amazing what can be accomplished. God himself said this. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis chapter 11? You know, this is, this is before the, uh, he calls Abraham to, to be the father of a mighty nation in chapter 12. But in chapter 11, it, this is before, this is the division of tongues. Do you remember where everybody was speaking one language and then he divides them up and they all speak different languages? Go back and read it in Genesis 11. It's in your Bible. But I'm going to look at a couple verses, Genesis 11, 5, and 6. This is when they were starting to build the Tower of Babel. And he says, But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Have you noticed that? God said, Nothing will be impossible if they're unified. And I, I was thinking back about this when people are unified. And I was trying to think, when, when in, in history have people been unified? And, and I think the most powerful thing I could think of is the things I've, I've read about from World War II. No, I was not living then. I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. But I've read about World War II and how that, how that as a nation with these external threats, how that we as a people were unified. It was not only the people that, that signed up to go and fight, but it was also the people who stayed here and the people who worked in factories. And I remember there was a, there was a time we were producing ships like every three days or something. Crazy. I mean, there were people. Why? Because we were united. We were united, and we had a purpose, and we had a goal. And we saw a shadow of that, just a shadow of that, I think, after 9-11, which we can remember. Do you remember the sense of, of national unity and feeling that we had been attacked as a nation and there was, I don't know, there was something very palpable about being an American and being together and rallying together? That's what the church is to be all the time. And let me say this, and I'll come back to this in a minute, but... That's the hardest part of church. It really is. The hardest part is for us to stay unified and for us to be pulling in the same direction. Because we, he says we need to be protected because there's an enemy that seeks to always divide and devour and create division in the body of Christ, and that's Satan. So he prays for us. He says, protect them by your name. And I believe this, I believe this. That we're to, we're to be one like the Father and the Son are one. And I believe this, as we all get closer to God, we get closer to each other. And if we're not getting closer to God, then we have created a counterfeit God. But when we get closer to the true God, 
we get closer to each other. And I'll say that about marriage too, free of charge. Bonus, bonus, bonus time. In your marriage, if you get closer to God, you get closer to each other. Number two, he prays for them to have the full measure of joy. Now, this is interesting to me. I was reading through this, and I'm thinking, he's talking about all this weighty, heavy stuff. I mean, the rest of the stuff is heavy stuff. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this, he said, oh, and I want them to have full measure of joy. Full measure of joy. You know, I, I, I don't think about spiritual warfare and joy kind of on the same page. So what is, what is this joy? Well, the, 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 the word joy means joy. That's what it means. It's not real helpful. It's one of those times you dig out, well, what does it really mean? Well, it means joy. That's exactly what it means. Some synonyms are pleasure, happiness, delight, gladness, enjoyment. Some people have said it's the happy state that results from knowing and serving God. I like that. Some people say it's the fruit of a right relationship with God. I think that's true. Al's definition is, is joy is smiling on the inside. Joy is smiling on the inside. You know, you can smile on the outside, and sometimes it means that you're happy or joyful. Sometimes it just means you're putting on a happy face. True joy is when you're smiling on the inside. So, and we're commanded to live this way. Philippians 4 tells us this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. So how do we live there? Well, part of it's really in an abiding relationship with God. We've talked about that, abiding in the vine, chapter 15. Other texts give us some more insight. These are some interesting Old Testament texts. Psalm 19, verse 8 says this, The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Precepts, the teachings of God. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Psalm 119, verse 14. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Now, there's a very real sense here that, and we're going to see this in how he talks at the end of this section about sanctifying them by your, your truth and your word is truth, that a mature knowledge of God and his word brings joy to us. That as a follower of Jesus, when we know God's truth and we follow God's truth, it makes us smile on the inside. One other verse about, about joy, and before I move on from this, I, can't, I, I could dig this out a little bit more, but I'm not. 1 John chapter 1, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our what? Our joy complete. So joy is a mature relationship of knowing God's Word, but it's also being in a right relationship with a vertical relationship with God and a horizontal relationship with other people. All this is woven together, and we can't break it all out. It ha when this comes together, we align ourselves with God's Word and His truth and the true God and our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's when we flourish. That's when our soul is singing on the inside. And He wants us to have a full measure of that joy. So it's okay to smile on the inside and on the outside. And be in a... a a holy, devoted person to God doesn't mean you walk around looking sober all the time. 
fact, I think it probably means you haven't got a, you haven't really grasped the truth yet of what God wants you to have. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Okay, so he, um, he wants us to protect us by the power of his name. He wants to have full measure of joy. What else? He says, verse 3, the third thing I see here is, don't take them out of the world, but to protect them from Satan. He, again, he's speaking to protection. He, he says, I could, I, one option, one option, I could just take them out of the world, beam them up, you know. You could have St. Peter or whoever, or one of the archangels, beam us up to heaven. He could do that. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. He said, I'm going to leave them here. I'm going to leave them here. He's going to leave us in the world. Now, let me say this. When you read the word world, when you're reading in your Bible, you have to always figure out what it's talking about. Okay? Because sometimes when he says world, he means this physical planet. Sometimes when he says world, he's talking about people. He's talking about all the people that live on, live on the planet. And sometimes when he says world, he's talking about this world system, how things operate in this world, the philosophy of this world, the direction of this world. So when you read world in the New Testament, especially, that's where you see it a lot, you, you, have, to, you have to ask this question, what is he talking about? Is it the physical planet? Is it all the people? Or is it the system? So he's left us in the world, and I think when he's talking about leaving us in the world here is obviously we're, he's leaving us here physically. We're still on the planet. Gravity is still working. He hasn't taken us to heaven. But he's talking about leaving us in this world system. Leaving us in this world system. He said uh, he left us here, protect them from Satan. Satan works in the world system, in this world economy. But then he says something very interesting that, that really grabbed me, and I don't, I don't know if you saw this, but he says this twice in this passage. He says, he says that we are not of this world any more than Jesus was. That's not, did you notice that? Verse 14. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Verse 16. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Now this, this is an interesting verse. And, 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 I, and I, was, I was thinking about this, and I, and I, I want to say this, and I think this is, I think this is true. The, 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 the more we walk with God and we try to follow God, the more we feel this way, the more we realize that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Um, you know? I, I don't know about you, sometimes I feel like an alien. Not that kind of alien. I feel like a... Uh, a stranger in a foreign country. I feel like a foreigner. Peter refers to us as pilgrims and strangers in this world. Oh my, my notes have gotten out of, out of order here. Excuse me. Hold on to that thought. What did I do? Okay, I'm back. <laughs> Aliens, foreigners, pilgrims, strangers. You know, um, there's so many good things in this world that I, don't, that I don't get to do and I'll never get to do because there's something in my heart that won't let me do them. 
not to the degree that I want because I, I, this is not my home. And so my plans and my direction and my will and my passion is really not mine to direct, it's to the Father's. Now hear me, some of you are saying, well, you, yeah, you say that because you're, you're, you're a pastor and you, you've been ordained and blah, blah. No, I say that, I say that because I'm a Christian. And I don't think it should be just for people who are in ministry. I think it should be for all of us. We should all have this sense of this world is not our home. What is really going to be... Ask this question. It's always a good question to ask. What's going to be important 100 years from now? What's going to be important 100 years from now? Then make your decision. Then make your choice. But, but I think to some degree, everybody who has yielded their lives to Jesus Christ and they're living under the flag, they're living under the banner of King Jesus he has the first allegiance in their heart. I think for all of us, we have some of this sense. I don't think it's just words, pious words that Jesus made up. That, that we who follow Jesus, we're not of this world any more than Jesus was, in a sense. And there is a longing, a good southern word, there is a hankering for heaven. That's usually used in the context of, I sure am hankering for some biscuits and gravy. But there's a sense in which hankering for heaven should be our heart's desire. I'm not going to spend much time on the, the fourth thing I say here, which is he sent them to the world. This is John's version of the Great Commission. We see it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I talked a lot about that in, in, in making disciples back in February. I'm not going to belabor that point. Number five, I see the fifth thing and last thing I see here when he prayed for them was sanctify them by your truth. Sanctify, what does that word mean? It means to be set apart, to be set apart to God. It, mean, it has the idea of holiness. Okay, now again, the holiness, we get this long face, but I think we have to weave it in with joy. I think holy people are joyful people. And I think when we... We live at that place where we're responding to the truth of God, as it says here, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. As we align ourselves with God's truth and God's word and God himself, as we do this, we become set apart for God and, and, and holy to God, and that's when we know the joy of the Lord in our lives. And I think when we don't have joy in our lives, deep down inside of us, it's because we're resisting God's words and ways in some way. People don't have joy because they don't have righteousness. And they don't have righteousness because they're not living God's ways. They're not obeying God's truth. Okay, let's finish John 17. Verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see your glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them 
and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Again, how powerful, how powerful it is to think back to that time when Jesus is saying these words. The last part here is for future believers. He's praying for people who are yet to put their faith in Christ. And, he's, and in a real sense, he's praying for all of us who will believe in Jesus. So what does he pray for us? In this, in this text, he really he prays for two things. He prays for unity and he prays for love. He prays for unity a lot. And this goes back to what I've already talked about and um, that we would be one just as Jesus and the Father are one. He says three times, he says in verse 21, that all of them may be one. Verse 22, they may be one as we are one. Verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. I want to camp for just a minute here. What, what, what does it mean when it says that there should be unity among us? Um, well, you, you, if you... You probably know Christians who have some different beliefs than you do who are following Jesus Christ and they've read some passages in the Bible and maybe they have read them a little different way. I think it's talking here about the big issues. It's talking about like issues of the Apostles' Creed where we're, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, died on the cross, rose from the dead, in, the, in heaven where the Father is going to come again, the Holy Spirit one universal church, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection, eternal life. Those big things, the essence, the essence of what we should believe about God. This is what I'm talking about. I can't wait to get to heaven. I've been thinking about it. One day I'm gonna, we're going to get to heaven and there's going to be Arminians and Calvinists and there's going to be dispensationalists and covenant people and pre-trib and mid-trib and post-tribulation people and pre-millennial people and amillennial people and post-millennial people and dichotomous and trichotomous. And if you don't know what that, all that stuff means, it doesn't matter. It's okay. Those are things that theologians talk about and argue about and call other people heretics because they don't agree with them on them. And these are not the issues. And when these things divide us, it grieves the heart of the Father. I, I just, I believe that. I really believe that with all of my heart. Harry Ironside, minister of 50, 75 years ago, said it this way. Wherever real Christians get together, they enjoy fellowship in the precious things of Christ. It is when we allow ourselves to be, pro be preoccupied with minor questions which do not profit that our differences come in. We are all one in Christ. The fact that Satan, our great adversary, has set members of the same family to quarreling with each other is sad indeed and should cause us to bow our heads in humiliation and self-judgment before God. End of quote. I've been around the church my whole life. Sometimes I think I was born in the church. Um, 
I, I, my parents, we were, we were in church. We were, just, we were just in church all the time. And when I got older, when I was old enough to volunteer, do things, I started doing things in church as a, as, as a teenager. And, and then later I worked part-time in church, and now I've been in, in full-time ministry for 40 years. And I would say that what Jesus is praying for three times here is the, is the prayer that the church needs the most. This, this idea of unity, a willingness to lay aside the minor differences and preferences that all people have and work for the greater good and work for the kingdom of God. Now, and it doesn't just happen, that's why he prays it. If it just happened automatically, we wouldn't waste time praying for it, would he? I don't think so. The other thing we see here is he prays that we would have love, and I think these things go together. Genuine love, genuine unity go together. And we've seen this before. John 13, 34, and 35 said this, New commandment, I give you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. And again, chapter 15, just, just a, a one little line in chapter 15, verse 17. This is my command, love each other. So this is to be the hallmark of the church, that there is unity and there is love. And whenever we're not, when those things are not existing, I don't care. I don't care how good your theology is. I don't care how many verses of the Bible you can quote. Okay? I don't, I don't care if you're on a street corner witnessing for Jesus. I don't care if you go on a missions trip every week of the year. Whatever it is that you hold up as a, as a great marker of spirituality, if we don't have unity, we don't have love, I contend it doesn't matter. I contend it doesn't matter. Lots of stuff here, so we need to respond to that. Let me pray. Let me pray for us today, and then, then we'll see what we can do with this. Father in heaven, a lot of, a lot of material here today, and I, I feel like I'm just overwhelmed with information, so I pray that you would help us to to simplify and clarify as we close the service today and help us to, to calm our hearts and slow down our, our racing thoughts that, and all the noise that's in our head and all the things that distract us. And Lord, may we get real and get honest with you and seek you even in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen.